Now we're going to read from the Bible, the Word of God. We're reading this morning in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. And I'm going to read from verses 26 through 42. Mark 14, 26 through 42. This is the Word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. If you're familiar with this congregation's weekly schedule, you know that we have a weekly prayer meeting each Wednesday evening. And that's because prayer is a central feature in the life of Christians. Not only individually, privately, we pray, but prayer together is a central feature in the life of God's people in the church. Think, for instance, of Solomon dedicating the temple of God. He led all the people gathered together in prayer. Think of Ezra, Ezra gathering the people by the river for fasting and prayer together as they set out to return to Israel to rebuild the temple. There's also the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1 after the ascension of Jesus when the disciples and the women gathered together in the house of Mary to pray 
There's another prayer meeting reported when the disciples gathered to pray in the house of another Mary, the mother of John Mark, when Peter was imprisoned. Acts 12. Another prayer meeting. Acts 16. When Paul and the others gathered by the river to pray. And then in our text today, another prayer meeting. Jesus convenes it. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And in some ways, this might have been the worst prayer meeting ever. Nobody there can stay awake. You know what that's like. Everybody, except for the leader, keeps falling asleep during the prayer meeting. In spite of their best intentions, none of the disciples, none of them, can keep their eyes open. And the leader, the leader of this prayer meeting, he almost seems disorderly. He's falling on the floor, falling on the ground, falling on his face. He's crying through the whole prayer meeting. What kind of prayer meeting example is this? It's the prayer meeting just before Jesus is betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified. It's the last hour before the crisis breaks out. And, and who's there for this prayer meeting? Who's, 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 who's there on the good side? You've got the overconfident and the overwhelmed. All the disciples are overconfident. And their leader, Jesus, is overwhelmed. So in our text this morning, we've got these two kinds of people in focus. And that's what I want to talk about today, these two. First of all, the overconfident disciples, the overconfident disciples, and then secondly, the overwhelmed shepherd, the overwhelmed shepherd. Let's start with the overconfident disciples. The context is they've just finished the Passover meal where Jesus tells these disciples, one of them will betray him and he will die as a sacrificial Passover lamb. So now they head out to the Mount of Olives, just a few minutes' walk. It's nighttime. And Jesus tells them, all of you will fall away from me tonight. All of you will desert me tonight. Verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble or or fall away or desert, all of you, because of me this night. Jesus says, All of you will fall away from me. Think of that. All of those men are ordained ministers. Jesus ordained them, commissioned them. They went out and preached. And they did miracles in the name of Jesus. They have gone out into the country as ministers, preaching and healing. Jesus says, all of you will deny me. All of you will desert me. How, how do they respond to that news? Well, they deny their denial. They contradict Jesus. They say, no way, Jesus. We will not desert you. We will not deny you. We would die for you before we would deny you. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even if all are made to fall away, yet I will not. Verse 31, he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Let me make a few observations about this from our text. First of all, Jesus is calling us into death. 
Jesus is calling us to death. If you are a follower of Jesus, he is calling you into death. Death for his name. Death to the desires for your own name, for your own well-being, for your own favor and comfort in this world. You've got to settle that in your mind. If you're following Jesus, he's calling you to this death. In three places in Mark, Jesus clearly tells them that he will die and be raised again, and then he tells them that they also must take up their cross and follow him and die. They must expect to die to their own desires, die to their own will, die just like he would die. And whenever he brings this up, it upsets them greatly. The rich young leader turned away from following Jesus when he hears that he has to give up his wealth to the poor. When Peter hears about it, Peter rebukes Jesus and tells him, this way of the cross, this is not the right way, Jesus. This is not the way for spiritual success. It shouldn't be this way. If you're listening to this and you are not a Christian, do you see what Christians should be like? I don't know what you've seen, in Christians, but do you see what Christians should be like, what Jesus has called Christians to be like? Jesus Christ requires everything from those who follow him. You have to be all in. You can't hold back. It would make no sense to leave everything, though, unless you were convinced of the superior worth of having this Jesus, of following this Jesus. And that's what's in view here, something so valuable that you would risk death, that you would give up your life to have it. Someone so worthy that you would give up prosperity here in order to be in with this person. So first, Jesus calls us into death. Verse 27 I will strike the shepherd, that's Jesus. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus the shepherd, his coming betrayal and crucifixion, he will be struck, struck down, death. And rather than stand with him and die with him, these men don't want death in the moment. Now secondly, cowardice, we see cowardice is closer than we think. Cowardice is closer than we think. We overestimate our strength. We underestimate our own weakness. We are weaker than we realize. We are not as strong as we think. You might, you might talk big. Peter said, he would first die rather than depart from Jesus. But it's when you are actually tested. It doesn't matter so much what you say, but when you're tested, that's what matters. And it's when you're tested that you discover how committed you actually are to Christ. For instance, you might, you might have rope in the, in the hardware store, some line, and it says on the package that it is rated for 300 pounds That's what's printed on the package. And it's great that the package says that. You might buy it and have this confidence that this rope rated for 300 pounds. But what actually matters? What can the rope actually do? You don't know until it is actually being tested. When you try to hoist 
300 pounds. Then you will discover if the label is accurate. Now for you who are disciples of Jesus, when you are warned about trial or when you are warned about temptation, how confident are you? How confident are you that you will, you can, you would stand under trial, under temptation? For instance, here is a mobile phone. Here is your own personal mobile device. It has a data connection. You can access on this little screen anything and everything online. How confident are you that you will set nothing wicked before your eyes, as it says in Psalm 101? Or you have a life decision in front of you, significant decision about work, about marriage, about calling, whatever, significant life decision. How confident are you as you assess and you weigh? How confident are you that you can handle the new environment, that you won't be swept away by the values of this world that will press against you? How confident are you that you will be able to make friends and not be influenced wrongly by the friends that you choose? How confident are you that your spiritual health can handle all the pressures that will come against it? 1 Corinthians 10 warns us, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be so sure that you will withstand the test on the day of trial. Don't be so sure that you, unlike the others, you will be the faithful one, the one with clean hands, the one with clean lips. We all have, we all have our pockets of self-confidence. Maybe, maybe yours is this. Maybe you are a big advocate for racial justice. You are sure that if you had lived in the days of the civil rights movement, you would be on the right side. You would have marched. You would have joined the nonviolent protests that finally forced the changes. Be careful. Be careful. Be humble. Courage costs something. Cowardice comes much easier than courage. Romans 11, do not be haughty, but fear. Do you believe this about yourself? Do you believe that? given the right circumstances and the freedom you are capable of doing the worst even denying the faith Romans 7 for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I had the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out there's a famous controversy in church history and it it speaks much to the controversies of our very tribal days. It was called the Donatist Controversy, and it actually just recurred over and over, and in some sense, it's still recurring today, the Donatist Controversy. Briefly, what happened there was some early believers, under intense pressure, denied the faith. They denied Christ. Why? Their lives were at stake. They were scared. They compromised. There were other believers in their times that stood up under the pressure. Some of them suffered for it. They didn't deny Christ. But later, after the persecution had eased up, some of the deniers 
regretted their cowardice, and they wanted to come back into the church. They wanted to return to the church. But the Donatists, who had not denied the faith, would not take them back. And they insisted, not only that, anyone associated with those who had denied, any of them was not a valid leader or believer, even if they had repented, even if they had come back. The weakness of the deniers, in the minds and the eyes of the Donatists, the weakness of the deniers permanently excluded them from the Donatist fellowship. Now, these are highly divided times that we live in. Do you know of people who have gone off the rails? Have you canceled them forever? Do not be haughty, but fear. Our own cowardice is closer than we think. So Jesus calls us to death. Our cowardice is closer than we realize. Thirdly, we see that weakness isn't willfulness. Weakness is not willfulness. In this passage, the disciples, to a man, have insisted that they will not deny Jesus. They will die for Jesus. Peter is singled out here. Verse 29, even if everyone else falls away, I will not Verse 30, Peter says, before this night is over, you will deny me three times. Peter says, with force, I will not. And then Jesus brings Peter and the others into a little test. Verses 32 through 42, he says, come with me. Jesus says, watch and pray with me. The hour of my betrayal is here. Here's your chance to die with me. You say you will die for me. You say you won't deny me. Can you watch and pray with me just for an hour? They can't. Verse 34, he says, stay here and watch. Verse 37, he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Verse 39, he went away and prayed. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Verse 41, then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? How could they die for him if they couldn't even stay awake for him? How? It's like when we say, Jesus, I promise that I will be loyal to you. I promise to read the Bible. I promise that I will be a kind father to my kids. I promise that I will be generous with my time and will support the work and the worship of your church and the spread of the gospel. I promise that I will care for the poor, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned. I promise all that. And then one day later, one week later, it's all, it's just, it's all washed out to see. And here we have to distinguish between weakness and willfulness. There are sins of willfulness, sins of willfulness. I know this thing is not right, but I am going to take the forbidden fruit. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know I shouldn't speak evil of this person or speak evil to you, but I am so mad. I am so hurt. I am going to speak the deplorable word willfully. We sin willfully at times. But there are also sins of weakness, 
sins of weakness. Verse 38, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples here wanted to obey Jesus. They wanted to watch and to pray, but their bodies were exhausted. They were unable to stay awake. The sleepiness itself was not immoral. It was not sinful to be sleepy. But the result, the result of their weakness, was they did not fulfill the command. It was a sin of weakness. Some people know what that's like. Some, some people have a damaged thyroid gland. That will affect mood significantly. Some people have been badly harmed. They've been traumatized. They perceive things differently. Their emotions run at a different level. Their weakness presents challenges that others do not face. We do well to distinguish between weakness and willfulness. The Bible tells us to admonish the unruly, the willful, admonish the willful, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, help the weak. You aren't hard on the weak. You don't use sharp words on the weak. You help them. Jesus Christ is gentle with the weak. Jesus speaks truth with gentleness to the weak. Here we see the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ. The priest in God's house was to be gentle with those who are weak. Hebrews 4 says Jesus is the great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Hebrews 5, Jesus is the high priest who can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Jesus Christ was subject to weakness. So distinguish between willfulness and weakness and have compassion on the weak. Fourthly, we see this. Jesus is faithful to the faithless. Jesus is faithful to those who are faithless. Verse 32, they come to this garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps it's an olive tree grove, that kind of garden. Olive trees were growing on that side of the Mount of Olives. Verse 33, Jesus specifically pulls aside three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go a little bit further into the garden to watch and to pray with him. Why these three? Why Peter, James, and John? James and John are the ones who, just a few chapters earlier in Mark 10, James and John are the ones who confidently proclaimed that they were great enough, they were strong enough to drink the cup of suffering and death that Jesus would drink. They were very confident they could drink that same cup. And Peter, Peter is the one who just now has argued with Jesus, argued with Jesus that he would never deny Jesus. Jesus has selected these three because they are the disciples who are supremely self-confident. And he knows that in just a few minutes, all of them will run away from him. All of them will deny him. Now think about that. Think about that. He called those three to be with him. Some of us here struggle 
with people who have hurt us. They have said things that we told them not to say, but they said it. They have done things that we warned them not to do, and they did it. They have left scars on our lives, scars in our thinking, scars in our hearts. And some of these people are still in our lives, and we fully expect that they will disappoint us again, that they will hurt us again, that they will let us down once again. And the temptation is to drop them, to disdain them. And sometimes we do that. Jesus knows that these three men are about to desert him during the lowest point of his life. Jesus knows that these three men are about to deeply disappoint him and abandon him when he would need them most of all. How does Jesus treat disappointing people who will disappoint him once again? He draws near to them. He draws them near to himself. He brings them in close to pray with him, to watch with him. And that is the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves overconfident disciples who don't deliver on their promise. How about you? How about you? Second Timothy tells us, when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We've looked at the overconfident disciples. Now let's look at the overwhelmed shepherd. Notice two things about the overwhelmed shepherd here. First of all, notice the anguish that comes with anticipation, the anguish of anticipation. Jesus is facing terrible physical abuse. It hasn't happened. It is about to happen. Terrible physical abuse. He will be struck with fists. He will be lashed with a scourge. He will be pierced with thorns. He will be nailed to a cross. He will be hung up to die. He will be pierced by a spear. And not only that, Jesus is facing terrible social and spiritual devastation. He will be abandoned by all who are dear. He will endure public shame. He will go through great, great injustice. And the shame and the weight of all of the sin and the pollution of his people will rest on his shoulders. And then he will go through the crushing emptiness of being alone, even alone from his father. Some of us have on this calendar some minor medical procedure, and we're anxious about it. We're anguished about it for weeks ahead of time. And to be honest, the anticipation is probably just as bad. Sometimes the anticipation is even worse than the actual procedure itself. Jesus has no exaggeration in his mind about what he's anticipating. Jesus knows the gruesome reality and the torment that is before him, and it overwhelms him. He's overwhelmed by it. Verse 33, he is troubled. He is deeply distressed, it says. He says his soul is exceedingly sorrowful, 
even to the point of death. It's like, it's like he knows that he has, it's like the, 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 the pregnant mother who has a child, but she's been told the child is not going to make it. He knows the unborn child will die. It's like he knows that his career is about to collapse because the company is falling apart. It's like he knows that his wife is going to be unfaithful to him and will divorce him for another man. It's like he knows that the bully is going to catch him after school and beat him today. Jesus is overwhelmed. Verse 35, he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He's saying in his prayer there, please, God, don't let this happen. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. You can stop this from happening, God. The pressure on Jesus is so intense that John tells us that Jesus sweat drops of blood. It's sometimes a sign of extreme stress for some people. The stress is so high that blood vessels burst in his head. And how is Jesus praying? He's outside at night, lying on his face on the ground. He is crying. He's crying tears. Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, he was a sobbing mess on the ground. Think about that. Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God, and he is overwhelmed. Being overwhelmed is not necessarily sinful. Sobbing on your face and crying through your prayers isn't sinful. Jesus was overwhelmed at what lay before him. But second, take notice of this. Look at the submission of his will. Look at the submission of his will. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus faced his impending suffering, crucifixion, didn't want it to happen. He did not want agony, but Jesus submitted his will to his Father's will. He said, do it your way, Father. When he faced his worst trouble, Jesus came to his Father. He prayed to his Father. He prayed personally. He prayed close. He prayed close to his God. In your trouble, when you are overwhelmed, if you are a believer, you have a Father. You have a close Father. Pour out your trouble to him. Tell him, God, I do not want the agony that this choice is going to cause. I don't want this. Is there some other way? Let there be some other way, if it is your will, God. Jesus wrestled in prayer over this for an hour, and somehow, mysteriously, Jesus submitted his will. The Son of God submitted to God the Father. Where do you go? when you are overwhelmed. If you're not a Christian, who will be there for you 
who will be there for you when you're overwhelmed? Who will be there for you the last time that you were overwhelmed? Will someone be there for you in your worst moment when you're old, when you're geriatric, when you're about to die? Or is it the case that ultimately we're all alone? There is a father. There's a good father who will hear and support the weak. Now, as we close, there's one last thing that you have to see in this. This whole scene takes place in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's very significant. The destiny of all humans was once decided in a garden, in another garden. One man, tempted in a garden, determined the life and death of his people. In that first garden, Eden, the first Adam, resisted the will of God, sinned, and then he died. His willful sin and death brought sin and death and suffering to all humanity to come. But there's a second garden, this garden. In this second garden, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, didn't resist the will of God. He submitted to the will of God and died. His submission and death brought joy and righteousness and life to all his people who would believe. In this second garden, Jesus deals with both our willfulness and with our weakness. Because of our weakness, we don't do as we ought to do. And what we do is lacking. It falls short. We're never good enough. We're never a good enough mother, never a good enough husband, never a good enough son or daughter, never a good enough student, never a good enough minister. And in this garden of temptation, Jesus, unlike Adam, submitted to the will of God, Jesus did good in the garden, obeyed the Father. And if you are counting on Jesus by faith, counting on his good actions, counting on his performance, not your performance, not your actions. That's how God sees you in your weakness. He sees you as having achieved what Jesus achieved and is imputed to you. How about your willfulness? Your willfulness, the times when you knew it was wrong, but you did it. The harsh words, the, the shameful habits, the shameful lies that you cover the screen that you fumble to cover up or to cut off, the times that you deny Jesus instead of declaring Jesus. In this garden, Jesus submitted to death the punishment for your willful sins so that you could receive forgiveness, life eternal, and love unending from this Father. Jesus is the faithful Son who never backslid but fully drank the cup of punishment as if he was the worst offender. And he did that so that the only cup for you to drink is the wine of the new covenant. And so, a word for you who are facing a difficult decision that will bring you loss, a difficult decision that will cost you something. 
How can we submit to the will of God if it means loss? How can we submit to the will of God if it means the death of our own preferences, our own desires? We don't do as we ought, but Jesus did. And if you can grasp that, and if you can trust that he did for you, you realize that you're free. You are free from having to build your own resume. Jesus didn't drink the cup because you did well. Jesus did well for you. And what will you do with that freedom? When you love this Jesus, love how well he did it for you, you want that. It draws you to live into that. A word to those who have been disappointed. How can we love those who will disappoint us? How can we love those who will hurt us and will hurt us again? You have to be convinced of this. You've got to be convinced that Jesus loves those who will deny and who disappoint him. Jesus loved you, knowing full well that you would deny and disappoint him, that you would defect. Do you have faith to see Jesus is that way? Because when you're convinced of that, when you've personally experienced that, that he loved you, the denier, loved you, the disappointing one, then you can love the deserter, the disappointer in your own life. And, and maybe this falls into, you're one of those people who, who struggles with forgiving yourself. That's what some people often bring up. I struggle to forgive myself for what I've done. You have disappointed yourself. Jesus says, enough with that. Enough with that. I knew that you would disappoint. That was never the basis for why I would love you and why I would forgive you. As I close, I want to speak finally to any of you here who are overwhelmed. Maybe you're overwhelmed with loneliness. You are so lonely that it hurts right here. You are lonely. Maybe you're overwhelmed by fear and worry. You're facing some giant wave that's about to crash on you. Come. Come to the one who was abandoned by everyone so that you could have a father who would never and will never abandon you in your time of need. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have come to you and we're faced with the ugly picture of our overconfidence and our cowardice. And we've come to the terrifying picture of a Christ who is overwhelmed we also come to the one who has loved us and death couldn't kill the life that he won for us. It was by his death that we were given life and joy and love. We believe that. Help us to live it out and to love those who surely will disappoint as we have disappointed. Give us that love with which we have been loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.